Good morning, Northbrook. If you'd like to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1 this morning, we're going to finish chapter 1 and part of chapter 2. We started this last week, Hebrews chapter 1 and 2, beginning of chapter 2, and I decided that uh, I had more material than I needed for last Sunday, so we'll finish this up. I'm going to be reading... Again, chapter 1 down into chapter 2 and verse 4. And I invite you to follow along as I read these verses out loud. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for our sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds, and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has appointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish but you remain. They all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has God ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all serving spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. Well, God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let us consider the steadfast love of the Lord. The Barna Research Group, and I've mentioned this group before and uh, some of their surveys, does an annual survey, survey of the top 100 media markets to determine the most and least Bible-minded cities in America. The most Bible-minded city in America used to be Nashville, 
They apparently have slipped a little bit. It might be since the Southern Baptists have established their headquarters there. I don't know. But um, it slipped a little bit, and uh, it now is Knoxville, Tennessee, is the most Bible-minded city in America, followed by Chattanooga. So, and then there's Nashville. So Tennessee seems to be the promised land, and uh, probably where Jesus will stand on the mount. But to determine Bible-mindedness, it's not a real high bar. Uh, you don't have to meet uh, a real high standard. Barna asks two simple questions. How often have you read your Bible? And how often do you attend church? And if you read your Bible once a week, and if you attend church, I think it's once a month, you get a check that you're Bible-minded. So it doesn't take a lot to become a Bible-minded city. But if you consider there are cities that are 98, 99, 100, um, that's kind of scary that there's cities that don't even meet that low standard. <clears throat> Typically, the Cedar Rapids market, uh, and we are in the top 100 media markets in the country. Typically, the Cedar Rapids market has been in the top 10 least Bible-minded cities in America. But last year, Barna released the results of a survey to determine the most post-Christian cities in America. Post-Christian means you've moved past Christianity and have no regard for it anymore. It's a little different from Bible-mindedness. And the survey was more in-depth, asking whether the person that they surveyed agreed or disagreed with 16 statements. And based on your agreement or disagreement with those 16 statements determined whether you were, as an individual, post-Christian or highly post-Christian. And if you got nine out of the 16, if you agreed with nine out of the 16, basically, you were considered post-Christian. And if you agreed with more, uh, 13 out of 16, you were considered um, hyper-Calvinist. No, wait, you were considered highly post-Christian. That's what it was. I get those terms confused. Um, just kidding. Don't fire me today. I'm just getting better, so don't fire me right now. Be a real letdown. The questions, here were the questions or the statements that you agreed or disagreed with. I do not believe in God. I identify as an atheist or agnostic. Faith is important in one's life. I have not prayed to God in the last week. I have never made a commitment to Jesus. I believe the Bible is accurate. I have not donated money to a church in the last year. I have not attended a Christian church in the last six months. I believe that Jesus committed sins. I do not feel a responsibility to share my faith. I have not read the Bible in the last week. I have not volunteered at church in the last week. I have not attended Sunday school in the last week. I have not attended religious small group in the last week. Um, on a Bible engagement scale, I have not read the Bible in the past week and I disagree strongly or somewhat that the Bible is accurate. I would not say I am born again. 16 statements, pretty straightforward, that you agree or you disagree with. If you agreed, as I said before, with nine or more, you were considered post-Christian. And Cedar Rapids, in this survey, 46% of Cedar Rapidians 
are considered post-Christian. When you hear those statements, 46%, almost half, one out of every two people that you will meet in Cedar Rapids is considered post-Christian or highly post-Christian. And as I thought about that, and as I was writing this, I thought, and, and here we are going to be today, gathering as one of 90 evangelical churches in the city limits of Cedar Rapids alone, not counting Marion, not counting Hiawatha, just in Cedar Rapids, one of 90 evangelical churches gathering this morning, talking about and singing about Jesus. And as I also thought about it, I thought we gather as a subculture, Christian, of a subculture, Protestant, of a subculture, Evangelical, of a subculture, Baptist, of a subculture, Southern Baptist, and then from there I could just keep going. But I wonder if while we do our church thing, do we really understand who Jesus was and is? As Christians gather in those 90 evangelical churches this morning, in Cedar Rapids alone, how many of them really understand who Jesus is and was? Or are they actually gathering, but being awful close to being able to answer some of those questions? Did they get six out of 16? Of the hundreds and thousands of Christians in evangelical churches today, were there some in Cedar Rapids, were there some who would have answered those eight out of 16? Do we really understand who Jesus was and is? Do we really understand the Bible? Do we believe this to be true? And more importantly, possibly, I wonder if given the opportunity, how well we could explain to one of those post-Christian persons that we know. And if one out of every two in Cedar Rapids is considered post-Christian, you got a pretty good shot that you know at least one of them. How well could we explain to one of those post-Christian people the person of Jesus? And you might say, well, I, you know, I'm, I'm a Christian. I've grown up in church. Actually, I had two guys trimming trees for me this week and grinding out stumps. And uh, in the process of meeting them and talking to them about bids and things, one of them uh, made the comment that uh, uh, his kids go to Isaac Newton. And I said, my kid goes to Isaac Newton. I said, where do you go to church? And he said, uh, Assembly of God Church down here on Blair's Ferry, the larger one. That's First Assembly of God. Um, and we got talking and um, had a really good talk. I have really no doubt that he's a believer. When he came to trim the trees, he brought a second guy with him. 
And, uh, and as they were working and I came out for a little bit, um, the first guy said, have you met this other guy? Did you meet him? And I said, no. And he said, his name is Andrew. He's on staff over at New Covenant Bible Church. And I thought, man, it's a small world. And uh, uh, nice guy. And we talked about some things and, and uh, uh, began to talk about, he, he has a real burden for the Western church and their view of church and their view of Christ and their view of obedience. And uh, very, very similar burdens to what I have. But I was thinking about that and thinking about my sermon. And I thought, you know, what we experience today as Christians is nothing like what they experienced in the time of the writer of Hebrews. They were dying for their faith. They were losing their jobs for their faith. And later on in the letter, we're going to find out that there were some of them that were in prison for their faith. And, and the thought that I had that coalesces with this conversation I had with this other person is considering our situation, how could we ever worry about people drifting away from the faith when we're not under the kind of pressure that those people were? But the writer of Hebrews in chapter 2 is going to make it clear to us that the reason he's writing is because he's afraid we're going to drift away from the faith. And then Andrew this morning was praying through that passage and one of the comments he made really struck me about Judas. I knew he was going to be praying that passage and I knew um, Monique was going to be reading that passage but I thought here's a guy who lived 24-7 with Jesus and didn't understand him didn't believe he really was who he claimed to be. Was not following him because of Jesus' primary message. And he went off course. And we've seen that in our own church. Master of Divinity degree, graduate of Bible college, a pastor, who abandoned the faith. And so it seems to me, understanding that there are 30% of evangelicals in America who do not believe that Jesus is God. Evangelicals. 30, uh, similar numbers in relation to whether or not the Bible is true. Evangelicals. It, it seems to me that we need to think about who Jesus is lest we drift away from the faith. When we live in a church culture, and what I mean by that is an American church culture, where Christians today are saying things like, we don't need to get all caught up in theology and doctrine. We just need to love Jesus. We've got a problem. Because it's from that theology and doctrine we understand who Jesus is and what Jesus are we loving if we're discarding theology and doctrine. All that heady stuff that's not so important that only you eggheads really care about. 
which Jesus. I'm concerned because Christians today recommend books that diminish the holiness and deity of Jesus and advance all kinds of heresy that Christians have bought into. And I hear it while I listen to uplifting and encouraging music. I hear it in the words of the songs. I see it on Facebook. I read it on Twitter. Christians who are pushing heresy because they don't understand who Jesus is. I'm concerned because Christians today have emphasized the humanity of Jesus to the point that he really is just a good moral man that we should all aspire to be like. I'm concerned that in America today and possibly in Northbrook, we have Christians whose hearts are like Judas. They've added Jesus for an advantage some leverage, some hopeful guarantee, instead of knowing and understanding and loving who Jesus is and was. And that seems to be the burden of the writer of Hebrews. And so, as we saw last week, the writer of this letter begins with proof, evidence, if you will, that Jesus is God. Again, as I said before, what a crazy thing to start a letter to Christians about, proving to them that Jesus is God. It's his, it's his whole premise, and he wants you to understand why Jesus is superior to every other religious system and to everything that exists by the time the letter's done. That's what he wants you to see. So I said, it's like a resume for Jesus. He tells us that God the Father has revealed himself through his Son. To see Jesus is to see God. It was possible because Jesus shares in the glory of the Father and the nature of the Father. Because he is one with the Father. Because Jesus is God. That's why when you see Jesus, you see God. And Jesus himself said this, and I think it was Matt who was saying this to me after the service last week, and I said, that's really good. I've got to include, this, include that next week. And if it wasn't you, Matt, whoever it was, don't be offended that I thought it was Matt. Just give glory to God for Matt, because we all know that that needs to happen. So that was a joke again. Matt, I love you. But in John 17, Jesus prayed to his Father and said, Father, the hour has come Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given Him, your Son, authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. Now there's some deep theology in that one sentence there if you start to think about it. But this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And this is what he says at the end of this section of his prayer. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence 
with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus himself claims that before anything was made, he existed with the Father, sharing in the glory of the Father. We're also reminded that Jesus not only eternally existed as the Son with the Father in this passage, but that he is also the creator of all that was made. I want to tell you right now that you need this week to believe that Jesus is the creator of all. This week. As a member of the Trinity, Jesus, in cooperation with the Father and the Holy Spirit, made all the worlds. I have a science background. I've mentioned that before. I have a degree in science. I, my dad worked in the space program, so I have this, this kind of dual affinity for space. I have a lot of it between my ears, space. And this week I saw in the news that they believe they found another planet out there, as they said, floating in the Milky Way. I I don't know why they would say it's floating. They all are. But it's just floating in the Milky Way and has the, the characteristics to support life. I find that stuff interesting, but I always chuckle inside because I think Jesus must be sitting there going, yeah, I knew about that one. That's been there for a long, long time. Glad you found it. He created it all. As a member of the Trinity, Jesus, in cooperation with his Father and the Holy Spirit, made the worlds, and Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power as God. I was thinking this last week about that. You realize that that means that as Jesus hung on the cross, he was thinking about his creation and holding it together by the power of his word. That was a pretty big thought to me. Because I guarantee you, when I was at the bottom of the barrel with COVID, I was not thinking about too much. I thought about you guys some. Uh, I, I honestly haven't told this to anyone, but I was, once they tell you you're having a heart attack and you're in the ambulance and you're feeling all the effects of the COVID, I was laying there saying, God, I would love to die right now. I want to be with you. But if it's more needful that I stay for Terry and the girls and Northbrook, keep me here. That's how I thought of you. But Jesus, hanging from the cross in agony, bleeding profusely, exhausted from a lack of sleep, held everything together by the word of his power as God. John tells us in his gospel, as I said last week, that all things were made by him and for him. And without him, nothing was made that would ever exist. 
As the Son of God, he perfectly fulfilled the redemptive plans and purposes of God the Father. By the sacrifice of himself, giving up the life that no person could ever take from him, because God, only God, has the power over life and death. He shed his blood and made purification for our sins. And I love how the writer phrases that here in verse 3. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What that tells us in that little phrase is that Jesus was not only concerned about our forgiveness, but our uncleanness. It doesn't say having bought forgiveness for our sins. It says having made purification for our sins. As he hung on that cross and as he died for us in our place, he accomplished what was necessary for us to be purified. That's awesome. Because what that means is that not only is my sin forgiven, which we sing so much about, but I was through Jesus cleansed so that Jesus could say, so that the writer of Hebrews could say in chapter 10, come boldly into the presence of God. Sprinkle clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water And we can stand in our Father's presence and we can stand in our brother's presence and be fully accepted. But I want to come back to this idea of Jesus having created all things and remind you that the Son of God, Jesus, rules over his creation as God. We're told that he has sat down, in verse 3, at the right hand of the majesty on high. We are told, in verse 8, about his throne. And I'll mention that again in a minute here. We'll come back to that in a minute. But we need to understand about Jesus as the ruler over the creation is that in the midst of a pandemic, in the aftermath of a derecho, on the threshold of another election, the question is, do you believe, not just acknowledge, but do you in your heart believe that Jesus is God and that he rules over his creation? I've said before I'm a political junkie. I've also said I don't want politics in Northbrook. But I'm like the moth to the light at night. You know, and, and Bugs Life, don't look at the light. I so stupidly go on the internet and to the news sites and read the news. And then I feel this sense of fear creeping up in me. And then I say to myself, John, You were an idiot again. Get off the news. And then I have to get my mind and my heart, my being back to the Jesus reigns. And I want you to understand 
that on Tuesday, God will put a person in office that he has chosen to be in office. And I will remind you again that we are to give thanks in everything and that we are to be content. We are to trust God because Jesus reigns over the whole creation. Nobody in the Trinity is going to wake up Wednesday morning and go, oh, I thought you were taking care of that. The Holy Spirit is not going to look at Jesus and say, it says you reign over all of it. You messed up. Jesus isn't going to look at the Father and say, well, I do what the Father tells me to do. And He didn't say anything. And the Father isn't going to look at His schedule and say, oh, rats, I did have that scheduled for 8 o'clock. Sorry. The Trinity will be resting in their eternal plan, enjoying that it has been continued to be fulfilled. The question is, will you be on Wednesday? You say, but, but if, if so-and-so gets elected, this could have this, or if so-and-so, you know, but, or there's, there's if, if you've done your, I already voted, so I'm, I'm already hung on what I've already voted, but there's a whole slew of names on the president if you haven't already voted. Do not put your hope in horses and chariots. And do not put your hope in men. Put your hope in Jesus, whom God has highly exalted and given a name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father, and He reigns over His creation. I want you, I ask you, to remember that Jesus, as God, reigns over all of it and is in control of all of it and is using all of it for your good and God's glory. And I want you, and I ask you, to remember this week and in the coming weeks to consider your words and your attitudes and your reactions as to whether or not they communicate the truth that Jesus is God as our future unfolds. Look with me at verse 8. Of the Son, God says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. There is no way to understand 
But the no other way to understand what the Hebrew of, writer of Hebrews is saying except that God is speaking to Jesus. Risen from the grave, Jesus has power over death and the grave. He has crushed the serpent's head. He delivered a mortal blow. And that old serpent, Satan, is dying. He's powerful, but he's dying. He is in his death throes. He is conquered. He is bound for hell. And Jesus now sits next to God the Father in the highest rank over his kingdom. Jesus' throne is forever and he rules in righteousness. There will never be an election. There will never be a coup. The king is served by the angels he created. These concepts are amazing and wonderful if you really think through them. And it means Jesus was not simply some really nice guy who did a lot of really nice things and taught really nice concepts. He was not some wimp who wasn't quite sure why he was here and ended up on the short end of the stick getting killed. But we should emulate his behavior. Jesus was and is the all-powerful God to whom the angels bow in worship and by whom every particle of matter exists and is sustained. And since this is true, and since Jesus has revealed the Father to us, we need to pay attention to what Jesus, God the Son, has said to us and done for us. Therefore, chapter 2, and verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. There are some, and we're going to find this all the way through Hebrews. It comes up over and over and over again. There are some who hear this and like it and seek to participate in it, just like Judas. <coughs> and just like Judas, some drift away from it at one point or another. The illustration that the author uses for us is a sailing one from, from navigation and boats in their days. It's the idea of someone steering a ship focused on maintaining the course. In dangerous waters, pay much more close attention to it. 
that person steering the ship has something that they're oriented, oriented towards, something that they're keeping in their eye, something that they know that's the direction they should go in order to get to the destination safely. And it consumes them, and that's all they care about because they want to get that ship where it's supposed to be. They are paying much more close attention to that than they are anything else. They're ignoring the distractions around them. Our destination is to become like Jesus. And that transformation is rooted in the message he preached and the death he died. But in order for us to ultimately arrive at the destination, our focus is to be centered on Jesus and not the things around us to distract us. That means we can't take the person or work of Jesus lightly. And becoming Christ-like has to be the driving purpose of our lives. Christ-like in our worship, Christ-like in our marriages, Christ-like in our work, Christ-like in our friendships, and every other facet of who we are and how we are. If it's not true about us, we put ourselves in a very dangerous situation. Keeping with the, the illustration of the sailor and the ship, he says, lest we drift away from it. In the language of that time, it meant a ship that would slip away. It isn't that he didn't have the anchor in the right place. It was that he was distracted and he wasn't focused on where he was supposed to be going. It's the idea of the ship slipping off course. And as one person put it, suggesting a gradual and almost unnoticed movement past a certain point. That's how it happens. Pastors who walk away from the ministry because they don't believe this anymore, it doesn't happen one morning when they wake up and go, I don't think this is true. It happens because they've gotten their focus off of Jesus. They've gotten their focus off the gospel. And they started to be distracted by other things. Pastors who begin to abuse their people, it doesn't happen because one morning they woke up and said, I'm going to be powerful. And I'm going to show them I am powerful. It's because their hearts have been stolen away by other things than shepherding the flock. Imagine the negligence of a captain who is distracted by lesser things. Maybe even good things. To the point that the ship moves off course and into potentially deadly places. In relation to us as Christians, it's the idea of setting aside the truths of Jesus of not caring about becoming like him and simply doing our church Christian thing. And I'm afraid that's way too easy for us. 
Jesus becomes the add-on to our life. Our claimed faith begins to weaken. Our love would cool, and we find ourselves shipwrecked. And the danger that the writer is talking about is not of one losing their salvation. Instead, the danger is that the salvation that they claimed was never rooted in God the Son, but in another Jesus and a so-called gospel. Judas lived with Jesus, but had created an imaginary Jesus that he was following and was shocked and stunned when he realized who Jesus really was and what he was all about. And he went off. But that had been building for a long time because his focus was not on Jesus and his mission. It was on another mission that he had added Jesus to. That's the danger for us. You know, it's good for us to study the letter of Hebrews. It's a big book. Again, I love how the author says, I have written to you briefly after 13 very deep chapters. It is a book that requires a lot of mental exercise. It's not an easy one. But there is so much at stake spiritually. You know, the election this week, are there things at stake? I'm almost 60. I'll be 60 in a couple months here. I'm starting to own that. I'm not going to go into the dark quietly. I just don't know I'm not. It's just not going to be me. I'm going to fight for every moment of youthfulness I can find in this old body as it ages. My first election that I could vote for was between Ronald Reagan and Jimmy Carter. Ronald Reagan came and spoke at our college. I thought he was going to be the savior of America. I was a political junkie then. My dad suggested I go into law because I was always able to argue my way out of things and political science and become a politician. I am so glad God spared me from that. But then somebody followed him and somebody followed him and I watched how they undid everything that he had done and I also watched as through those years, those eight years, how things came out and things came out and things came out and it was like, he's not Jesus. But I think honestly, I thought he was. And what I found over all these years. So I was born when John F. Kennedy was president. I've been through a lot of presidents. None of them have been Jesus. 
And I would go so far as to say none of them have been godly men. What I will say is you have an obligation, I think. You have a, you have a right, maybe an obligation. It's funny how many people start to talk about obligation at this time of the year when they want somebody to be elected and the rest of the year they then trash them and they don't have an obligation to honor their authorities that they don't agree with. It, that's a whole nother sermon. My point is, there's a, there, there are some things at stake in this election. But folks, there is much more, much greater things that are at stake in your life every day as one who has heard. And what you will do with Jesus and how you will choose to live and whether or not you will yield yourself to the transformation of the Holy Spirit. Much greater things at stake in that. What's at stake is the gospel being clearly proclaimed to your neighbors. What's at stake is how you live with your friends or spouse or children or grandchildren and what they think of Christ and what they think of the gospel because of their interaction with you. What's at stake is your eternal destiny. Some of the saddest words in the Bible are the ones that Monique read today. He went out. He hung himself. Pretty graphic what's there. They want you to understand that there is judgment and every transgression or disobedience receives a just retribution and how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? That's what's at stake. So as we continue in the book of Hebrews, I would encourage you again to ask the Holy Spirit to help you understand what God has spoken to us through the Holy Spirit in this letter we call Hebrews. And that you would ask by his power to transform you into the image of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would teach us from your word. Your word is true. Your word is powerful. Your word pierces us to the depths of our inner being, who we are. Your word exposes. Your word proclaims. Your word invites. Your word brings salvation. Your word nurtures, nurtures and nourishes. Your word brings us to be like Jesus. 
God, I pray that You would use Your Word in our lives. In Jesus' name, Amen.